What's up, beautiful people, and welcome back to another mindless meltdown here on the Relax, We're All Gonna Die podcast. I'm Jackie Dutton, and thank you so much for listening. So first of all, I know it's been a while. I guess I could manufacture a reason, but the truth is that I was just hoping that my cryptocurrency investments would make me a fucking millionaire so I could just, like, vanish and then pop up on Instagram in a different country every other week. But uh, since Elon Musk and China have decided to delay that for me, not cancel it, just delay it, I decided to get up here on my podcast soapbox and preach another sermon of spiritual apathy. So, let's get started. To begin today's channeled message from above, I'd like to tell you about a meme I saw that so perfectly explained how I felt about some past employment experiences. The meme said, I bring a real we-should-all-quit kind of vibe to the workplace that employers don't really like. I'm gonna be honest, on more than one occasion at work, that was definitely me. I know, shock, the chick who started a podcast telling everyone to chill out because we're gonna die also brought this life-is-meaningless-let's-just-quit perspective to work with her? Never. Um, I'm not sure if I've said this quote on here before, but my brother always said one of the most wisest, wise-ass things I've ever heard, and it's always stuck with me about a job. He said, I can always go get another job I hate. So there's your perspective. You don't like your job? You could go find another one you might not like. Might be better, but if you hate this one, what have you got to lose besides staying in the same bullshit feeling you currently are in? Anyway. I bring up the fact that I was not HR's dream employee because I remembered a tactic that I had on really shit days at work with one of my best friends who was also my coworker, and I wanted to share it in hopes that you can try it and have it help you. To explain to you the level of pain in the ass that this particular job was would take me 10 podcasts. It would be an absolute epic poem of bitching and several stories involving very well-known celebrities and ridiculously wealthy people who behaved like idiots and thought nobody would notice. I was noticing. Anyway. In addition to this, it was a service industry job, and we hardly ever knew how busy we were going to be, which was a fucking problem when you work for tips. Can you imagine walking into a job and not knowing whether you're going to make $80 or $800? Yeah, that's what that was like. Not to mention that the parking changed on a daily basis, security was ridiculous to get in even for the employees, and they expected us to behave like fine dining waiters while paying people something barely above minimum wage. Again, I could be really long-winded about how annoying this place was. Like, somewhere two director managers in, I came into work and I just loudly bitched to the entire room and I told them all that it was like when I got in my fucking car to come to work for that place, it was like Jigsaw, the puppet from the Saw movies, shows up in my rearview mirror as I back out of my parking space and just goes, wanna play a game? And then I spend the entire shift just trying to navigate the obstacles that are trying to emotionally torture and absolutely kill me. Again, I bring the we should all quit vibe. I warned you. Anyway, so 
my best friend started working a lot of shifts with me, and we usually worked the same bar together, so we pooled our tips because we were working our ass off together and it was just us. We usually looked forward to just making money, doing our job, and then getting the fuck out. But we also found enjoyment in standing around and being hilariously entertained and outraged by how terrible that fucking place was to work. Seriously, if you have a job that you can't stand, I encourage you to get a coworker friend like this. It makes the shift a little easier. But somewhere in the middle of us working together was around the time that the Powerball and the Mega Millions started turning into insane jackpots. Like, ridiculous ones. Like, 350 million, 500 million, 700 million. I think it even got up to a billion at one point. So, we started doing this thing that I encourage you to try. Not only did we play the lottery and vow to split the jackpot with each other, because we had plans for the money, but we knew that we really didn't need more than like 20 million each to accomplish any of it comfortably, but pretty much every jackpot for the lottery is over 40 million after like the second or third week. So we knew that we could pretty much play it at any time and it would be fine. But not only would we each buy some lotto tickets before work, but we would then spend the entire shift telling each other that we were going to win. We would be unbelievably busy. I mean, like, balls deep in tequila, lime juice all over my shirt, soda gun, fucking up. And she'd come over and she'd start bitching to me about a customer. And I'd just be like, it's okay. It's okay. It doesn't matter. Because this is our last shift. See, the second we won... We were going to quit that job that pissed us off so bad. And that was funny to us. Especially, it was funny to imagine all of the ways that we would actually quit. Because various stories involved, like, the grotesque, terrible, all the way to, like, an absolutely, like, Batman, Dark Knight, Joker-style maniacal. But we would imagine all of these different ways that we could potentially quit because we had won the lottery. And all of the ways that we would spend the money. But most importantly, we would spend the whole shift laughing and lighter and easier and good-humored simply by thinking of the idea that by the end of the night, when we looked at the winning ticket numbers, we'd be free. It was the best thing that we ever started doing. And I don't recommend you start blowing all of your money on lottery tickets, but maybe just, like, trade one of your Starbucks trips for a Powerball ticket and let your mind wander a little. I started thinking about this, though, this mindset thing. And when I started doing it, and I realized that I'd been setting myself up to do it in a different way long before the Powerball thing. I was working a job that honestly... Like, that one wasn't even my fault. It was just, like, a shithole, but it was, like, the job you work to learn what you don't want ever again after that. I didn't know any better. But aside from that job, there were other things going on in my life that were very serious and not funny at all. My dad was very sick, and because of that, there were just a lot of other ripple effects. So, at the time I was acting in L.A., and... Every commercial casting director said, we only want to see people who have taken improv classes. So I signed up for improv comedy lessons at the Second City School of Improv. Second City is very famous. Uh, their main stage is in Chicago, and it's where Tina Fey, Stephen Colbert, Amy Poehler, basically most of the people you see on Saturday Night Live started learning at Second City. 
one of the basic premises of improv is yes and. It's to agree and heighten. So if you were thrown out the idea of, hey, write me a letter, you say yes, and then can I make you a milkshake? So you agree, and then you heighten. You take it somewhere else. And being funny comes later, but you have to learn to play the game. But the best thing that it did was that it was once a week, and it was at least two and a half hours for the the class that was weekly. And when I started taking the classes, I actually wasn't quite sure how long I would do it. I just wanted to take the basics so that I understood what I was doing in an audition and what they wanted from me. But as I started to take the classes, I got pretty good at it, and I started to remember... It was the best part of my week. It forced me out of my own head. It was a place that forced me to laugh, to be funny, to be silly, to just surrender and not think about all of the other very serious things that were happening outside of that door, outside of that classroom. But in this little classroom, everything was fine and I was okay and everything was funny and it was good. And it was such a safe little space it changed my life. It, it saved my sense of humor. And it really, really helped me. I encourage anyone who is uptight, anyone who doesn't know how to listen, um, because that's a huge part of improv, you have to listen so that you can process and then heighten, react, add to what's going on. But you can't do that if you do not listen. I just can't say enough wonderful things about the way that it teaches you to interact with life. And if you ever go see an improv show, I'm sure part of you will think like, oh my god, some of this is ridiculous. Well, yeah, that's the point, because life is fucking ridiculous. There's a lot of points of your life that you're just gonna look around and be like, are you fucking kidding me? (laughs) But all you can do is surrender to it. But how you take it on the chin and keep going and move forward, or above it and beyond you will learn the lessons easily in an improv class that help you go forward. I can't say enough wonderful things about that. And when I started taking those classes, it really did change my life in in such a wonderful and positive way. And at the same time, I kind of wandered into a couple different crystals shops in Los Angeles. They're they're kind of everywhere. LA isn't big on religion, but there's definitely like a very spiritual vibe. I walked into a few crystal shops and I'd found a crystal that was a little charm that you could wear on a necklace. And the whole basis and idea behind crystals is that everything in the universe vibrates at a particular frequency. It's the the law of frequency. So different crystals resonate at their own particular frequency. So for instance, the pink stone, which is called rose quartz, that resonates with loving energies and relationships and love and that kind of thing. The citrine crystal is like a yellow, white-ish crystal, and that is a stone that resonates with abundance and creativity and happiness. So that was the stone on a charm that I picked up and wore around my neck. Consequently, because of this love of crystals, my wedding ring is also the main stone in it is also a crystal. It's a morganite stone, which is the stone of divine love. I love the representation of this, right? The meaning behind it. At the time I started wearing the crystal, I went to work and I had a customer ask me about it. 
And I explained to him the whole thought process behind crystals and also the thought process behind me wearing this particular one was that I wanted creativity and abundance and I just wanted to resonate higher with that. And I remember I kind of brushed it off like, well, you know, it could all be bullshit. But then they said to me, well, no, because at the very least, it's kind of like a string around your finger. So the string around your finger thing is an old school idea that when you don't want to forget something, you tie a string around your finger because then every time you look at your finger, you see the string and it reminds you, oh, I can't forget that. So by wearing the crystal and having it hit me in the chest or, you know, looking down and seeing it or feeling it across my body, that acknowledging that it's there again and again every single moment that that happened was me realigning my thoughts towards what I actually wanted and away from wherever I was that I didn't want to be. Between Second City classes and that crystal and and just the idea of trying to shift myself beyond what was very difficult and very sad in my life at that point, my whole life changed from for the better. And, and when I think about what was going on then versus where my life is, especially now, it's two different people. I am two different people. That's like, I, I wouldn't know her if I met her. But the bigger thing about these two tactics together with the crystals and the yes and and all of that and, and not just the changing of me was the lesson of surrendering. Because when I got to the job where I ended up playing the Powerball a lot to stay positive, I remember every day at that place being violently different, like aggressively chaotic. One day... Everything was for charge. You had to make everybody pay for everything. The next, everything was completely comped. Totally free. You would be pulled from one place, put in another, made to work in there, in a room you'd never been before. You would work with people you don't know and that you would never see again. You didn't know where anything was. And this was not the kind of job where you just, like, showed up, dicked around on Facebook on your phone, and then left. This was insane. Finally, one day, I just remember that it felt like, like, finally I got it. Not because I was, like, any better or the job finally calmed down, but because I had just surrendered. I completely exhaled, relaxed, and just accepted that the fact was that the place was a clusterfuck inside of a dumpster fire during a nuclear meltdown. And finally, with that, I found peace. I accepted that every single day that I'd walk in that place that I ended up calling, quote, a round windowless shithole, that I would probably be handed a situation, event, task, circumstance, whatever, that I hadn't known that I needed to do that day beforehand, but oh well, just get it done. This is the part where I expose what a true Aries I am, because for as much shit as I talk about this place, I was actually their number one employee. I don't know who that reflects worse on, me or them. But anyway, literally, like we had union status and based on hours worked, and I had outworked some people by hundreds of hours. Just because I didn't like the place didn't mean I showed up and did a half-assed job. No, I full-assed everything at that job. And it was enough for my managers to overlook that whole we-should-all-quit kind of vibe that I brought with me on some days. Was it because I have a crazy work ethic? Yes. Was it also because I am a cutter for money? Also, yes. But I'm telling you this 
because we often think of a job in terms of this vessel for our life's way of sustainability, right? Like, it's a need. Like, you need your paycheck to pay your bills. You need to be able to take this money so that you can live your life. But have you ever heard the quote that anything that costs you your peace is too expensive? Well, I think that's true. Because your time is a currency. Your time is kind of the only currency you really have on this earth. Your attention is a currency. That's why they call it paying attention. So if the time your job is costing you continues long after you clock out, why are you letting them live rent-free in your head? Surrender to their bullshit while you're there. But that doesn't mean that you let it move in and stay there for free. No, it means that during business hours, your door is open. And the second you are off the clock, you clock them the fuck out too. Good night, I'm out. One of the greatest ways to look at it is the relax, we're all gonna die way, right? The, wow, y'all really give a shit about this non-permanent earthly plane of employment? This, this job that pays me as much as fucking COVID unemployment? That's wonderful. That's what you're letting disturb your spirit and fuck with your peace? Honey, no. So to wrap this up, those are my lessons. Play the Powerball. Convince yourself you're going to fucking win. What, what do you have to lose? Two dollars? And at least you got to spend the whole day in a good mood imagining the yacht you're going to buy. <laughs> the Bezos lifestyle you want to live. But either way, you took yourself out of your own head for a minute. And hopefully you elevated yourself to a place that you want to be instead of the place that you don't want to be stuck. So that's all I have for you guys this week. Um... Thank you so much for listening, and if you like it, please give it a follow, share, tell somebody about it. I'm Jackie Dutton, and I will catch you guys in the next one.